Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the medical cannabis producer in Ancaster will be allowed to grow in Ancaster, as long as they meet some conditions. Also, we hosted the Chief's Town Hall with Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, an ongoing concern that we've had for the same uh, period of time uh, as as the legalization of cannabis, and then, of course, is is the industry itself and its location here in the city. And the medical cannabis producer in Ancaster uh, is now going to be allowed to grow. This was a very contentious issue, of course, that was uh, uh, being batted around by council for quite some time, and it looks as if there's some resolution to this. And uh, to that end, we're glad that uh, our next guest could join us. Lloyd Ferguson, of course, is the counselor for Ward 12 in Ancaster, uh, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good to see you again. You're a busy guy. It's hard to get you in studio here, but I appreciate you coming in today. Well, I'm glad to be here, Bill, and talk about this issue. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, because I know you raised some, some, I think, some very serious concerns and legitimate concerns about this operation. And uh, the, you basically said, look, let's have a time out and talk about this. Uh, maybe in the way of background, let's talk a little bit about, first of all, the proposal, where they want to go and what they want to do, and then we can talk about how you uh, you found some resolution to this. Okay, and let me start by saying City Council has nothing to do with the legalization of cannabis. That's a federal responsibility. Yep. Nothing to do with the distribution. That's provincial uh, responsibility. Our responsibility is land use. And and so in this particular application, we I have another one in Ancaster. It's in the Ancaster Industrial Park. It's in production. It's working well. And the, the, the advantage of not going into prime agricultural land from the grower's perspective is it, our industrial parks already have three-phase power. They have unlimited water. They have access to public transit. You know, the Green Organic Dutchmen are telling us that they're going to be employing 75 people there. And, and that's a concern out in the rural areas. So my key issue, which is in sync with our official plan, is that we should retain prime agricultural land to grow food, uh, not to cover it with concrete and asphalt and glass uh, to grow cannabis. Um, and cannabis is a narcotic, and uh, that's different than food. And uh, we should be... Uh, really working hard to preserve our prime agricultural land. And we've done that with our zoning, and we've done that with the Green Belt. Our Green Belt is, is out there to protect agricultural land to do just that. But, uh, I mean, in our area, we grow uh, wheat, soybeans, and corn. And, and for the cattle, we grow oats and barley and, and, and for feed for the cattle. So our rural official plan sets a guideline for um, cannabis. And, and it started out with medical marijuana and has subsequently been amended to include recreational, that the maximum size building you can put up on a, a, a rural property, or its own rural, which is our farmland, is 2,000 square meters. So the Green Organic Dutchman, uh, TGOD is the, is the acronym, the way it's traded on the stock exchange, came in with an application for 15,000 square meters. So about seven times, uh, maybe a little more than seven and a half, seven and a half times what our maximum that was... Um, allowed for in the official plan. And so um, there was one building of 2,000 square meters and one building of 13,000 square meters. So they got the approval for the 2,000 square meters because that's right in our OP. Yeah. Okay, that, that fits. But what about the there other one? Well, the other one, um, council denied it. They denied it because it uh, didn't comply with our official plan, which is preserving prime agricultural land and limiting it to 2,000 square meters. And, and, of course, the neighbors also come out highly opposed to it for four key reasons. Uh, we've had a, some significant problems in Hamilton with other marijuana grow operations, particularly on the East Mountain with odor. You know, uh, Brenda Johnson, who, is, who represented that area at the time, 
He said it, they had to close driving ranges. The neighbors had to keep their windows shut all the time. She said she had to keep her windows down for a couple of kilometers while driving to get that odor out. And uh, because that's uh, a side effect of growing cannabis, it does have an odor. So they were concerned about the odor. They were concerned about water. I mean, it's in the middle of a farming community, Alberton, New Jerseyville Road, Lancaster. There's mm-hmm. nothing more rural than that. It's on country roads, a lot of hills, very narrow, just gravel or surface-treated roads. And, uh, of course, there's a lot of dairy farms. And if you lose your water, you're out of business as a dairy farmer. And, uh, you know, if you have three kids, expect to have you showered in the morning or bath at night and wash laundry, you need water. We, sh- we should mention, but th- these are all wells. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, there's no there's no public water yeah. out there, unlike the industrial parks. I talked about three-phase power and public yeah. transportation. They also have public water. And so, so water is a concern, obviously. Though. Absolutely. That was the concern, is, is the water supply. And with these, start, with these many plants, and yet they're going to capture the gray water, which is the one-off water off the roofs. But what happens in July and August when it doesn't rain? What happens in, you know, December through to April when everything's froze up? Uh, where are you going to get this water from? So you have to have backup wells to do that. And what's that going to do to the aquifer? They're concerned about transportation because it is all narrow, hilly roads, a lot of farm equipment out there. And the big farm equipment that we have nowadays takes up the whole road. Um, and also, uh, you know, no access and egress points. I was sent pictures of trucks pulling out of the Teagog construction, and of course the back wheels of the tractor trailer goes in the ditch, and they're stuck across the road. It's on a hill, so there's all this transportation issues. Plus, they're knocking the daylights out of the road. All the many concrete trucks and aggregate trucks that are going in there, particularly which, during- by the way, is not the gra- greatest of roads to begin with. I mean, Jerseyville Road is an old it's, it's an old wagon trail, isn't it? Well, I don't know. It's a, it's a farm yeah. road. It's a rural road. It's a typical rural road that you see. Anywhere. And, and that was the major concern because we, we drive that road a lot. And and I said, wait a second. I mean. Uh, and so I talked to these people about this, and they said, no, 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 there's not going to be as much traffic as you would think. And then, uh, they seem to obviously have uh, have pacified the city staff about this anyway. Well, city staff did recommend approval because there were, there, uh, I, I sense it was because the the 75 jobs it would create. And and as I drilled into the planners, they're not from the farming community, and they don't understand these issues. I don't think they would ever recommend another one. Oh, that only happened if we see another application, but our official plan still says maximum 2,000 square meters. But the fourth issue the neighbors were concerned about was light spillage. CBC did a report. They'd light up the sky at night because of the intense light that's required, particularly when you have a greenhouse uh, that they're, they're growing them in. The one at the Ancaster Industrial Park is a bunker building. It's, it's enclosed, and so it has no light spillage. So how will that change things by having the, the night sky lit up in the country? And what impact will that be? So those are the, the issues. At the maximum 2,000 square meters to preserve prime agricultural land, and also these four key issues that the neighbors were concerned about uh, if this was allowed to go beside them. So we denied it. And uh, so they um, appealed it to ALPAT, Local Property Appeals Tribunal, uh, to overturn the council decision. But in the meantime, went ahead anyway. They started putting this 13,000 square meter building up without zoning and without a building permit. And so uh, we got wind of it that uh, this was going on. So we sent building out and building uh, put a stop work order on them, as you expect, because they don't have the necessary approvals. Mm -hmm. And so they come back in and got a a permit for potted mums. And mums is an agricultural product. It's, It's permitted in the agricultural area. And so we had to issue the building permit. So they went ahead and put this building up, 13,000 square meters to grow potted mums. But 
what kind of caught me off guard is when the uh, the media contacted them and asked them about that. He says, well, it's only temporary. As soon as we win the LPAT hearing, well, we'll convert it back to marijuana. So they're playing a little bit of games with it. And it's, a, in my view, a mammoth risk they took by going ahead and putting this building up without zoning and without the proper building permit. So then we fast forward, uh, uh, the LPAT hearing was coming up and um, our legal department came to council and says, you want to stay the course. Uh, went first to planning and planning on a, a pretty substantial boat said, no, we want to stay the course. We're not, we're not going to cut a deal. It got to council and, uh, and OTGOG clearly did a lot of lobbying because at the end of the day, um, the, the decision to um, stay with the appeal to LPAT was defeated on a vote of six to seven. So we lost by one vote. Now it was a stormy night. So two members of council weren't there who supported staying the course uh, at committee. And so if they're there, probably would have been a different decision. So how do you, how do you proceed from there? Because okay. obviously you had to find some resolution. So here's how we proceeded from there. So, uh, you know, I had no choice as a ward councillor but to accept the corporate decision of council, even if it was six or seven opposed decision to stay the course. And so um, I, I went to council and I said, as a condition of agreeing to settle, uh, I want four studies done on those four areas I talked about, light spillage, transportation, water, and um, odor. And um, so council agreed unanimously on that. So uh, the settlement states that TGOG must come back to city council or come back to staff. It, we've delegated the authority of proving this to, uh, in consultation with the ward councillor, which is myself, mm-hmm. approving um, um, studies that are done, how we're going to prevent the wells, you know, protect the neighbors from uh, their wells from, being from affected. those four things. Now, have those, those studies, things. have they been done yet? No. You know, they're, they're in the process right now. Once they submitted to our director of planning, the council resolution says they must go out and get peer-reviewed. So our planning staff will then retain another consultant who specializes in this area and review them and come back to us with suggestions of how we can protect the neighbors. And in addition to that, I insisted on this and council agreed on a unanimous vote, is that we have to determine what happens if the wells do start going dry despite all this. What happens if, if they're, they, they don't put curtains up and the, the night sky is lit up? Uh, what happens if they, they don't give proper access and egress points and they don't repair the roads that have been severely damaged by the construction activity? So what does happen? What are your so, options here? So we are, we're going to quantify them. We're going to put a value to it. What, and and TGOD's agreed in the settlement to do these studies, to pay for the peer review, and to put up a letter of credit. And so we'll quantify. And they've agreed that the affected area will be for five years and it will be a five-kilometer radius of their location. So the people of Jerseyville were particularly concerned about this, and they're within that five-kilometer radius. So we're going to quantify what would it cost to fix this well problem, probably deepening wells or drilling new wells down deeper to get into the aquifer further. What would it cost if we started losing them? And in addition to that, they must monitor every one of those wells for five years if the, if the owner of the well permits them to. If the owner says, no, I don't want it, then they won't do it. But uh, they're, they're monitoring these wells and see how they're, what they're doing to the aquifer, if anything. And, and so uh, they, if they don't put curtains up to block that light spillage at night, we'll have enough money and a lot of credit to go in and do it for them. If they don't build proper access and egress, we'll build it and take another letter of credit. So that's how the public is protected. So you, you've got, a, you've got a, a pot of money that you can work on. We can. We can draw on it if, the, if our neighbors aren't being And they're respected. okay with that. They've agreed to they this. They sign off on it. Yes. So this is the settlement. 
Four studies, peer-reviewed, secured with letter of credit. It's right at the bottom line. Lloyd, is this happening with other companies? Because these things are popping up all over the province now that this is legal. Don't know. I, I, we haven't communicated with the municipalities. I don't know what their official plans will say. I mean, I, I really wish uh, the growers of this stuff, and it's an emerging market, so it's still trying to feel its way through sure. all municipalities. Yeah. But go to our brownfields. I mean, we still have those in the city. You don't need farmland to do this. It's, they go to farmland because it's cheap. You can get farmland a lot less than industrial lands. But if you buy up a brownfield, you got the, the three-phase power. You got the water. You got the public transit. But the, the property is more expensive than going buying. So what's their answer? Because, because it's been raised before. Other communities have done that. I think the one in Barrie is, is, uh, is, is in the middle of an old industrial area. Uh, well, the one they're building in Collingwood, a uh, huge operation, but it's right on the cusp of a, of a, a business park. Uh, I don't think there's so access to city services in. Yeah. Yeah. That's the key. Don't take up our farmland. Don't buy up 75 acres, pay 50% above market price. So for a bona fide, if that's what they did, it, and, and um, you know, make it more expensive for bona fide farmers to buy land to expand their facilities. It, this has a big ripple effect in my view. But at the end of the day, it's all about let's preserve our prime agricultural land. Let's take these facilities because the product is growing in pots. It's not growing in the ground. And, and put them into our industrial parks or put them into our brownfields and, and have them go there. All right. What's the zoning on this now? Is is Because this is a business, but is it still zoned agricultural? Yes. Okay. So there's no change as far as taxes are concerned then? Well, that's another issue. Should uh, they be development charges? Because agricultural buildings are yeah. exempt from development charges. And we had that debate yesterday at Audit Administration. And this comes up when we uh, uh, confirm our new development charges by law uh, at Audit Committee in um, in mid-June. And, and so that'll be a discussion. But you know, I'm told what they'll have to do is pay, they can pay agricultural taxes in the building, but where they process it, they have to pay commercial taxes. We're going to keep pursuing that because it's not an acre, you know, it's a Because that, that was one of the selling points initially. They say, well, you know, that's going to be converted to commercial taxes. That's a higher tax part. Well, there's little, there may be a small room where they actually process these plowers would be taxed at commercial rates. But uh, we haven't fully finished that that side yet and, and how that will apply. But I think, I expect they're going to be looking to pay farm taxes, agricultural taxes, because unfortunately the OFA has come out and said that the Ontario Federation of Agriculture has said that it's a, it's a crop. Well, you can't deny that. It's a seed that goes in earth, you water, and it grows. And, you know, that's like any other crop. But it's still a narcotic that's taking up prime agricultural land that should be growing food. Uh, are there any other in the, in the hopper? I mean, this this is a huge operation that's taken an awful lot of time. I know there are other businesses, as you've talked about before, that are already here and, and established, and some of them are actually in expansion mode right now. But do you anticipate there's going to well, be any, I know there's anybody another else? One. I th- I, you know, I'm trying to remember the name is Breeze, um, but it's on. It, it, I'm not sure that's the exact name, but it's on Highway Six. It's an old um, scrapyard. Well, mm-hmm. that's an old industrial use. Yeah. It was a legal nonconforming one becoming back then, but at least they're not shutting down farmland to to build it. So this is they they still anticipate having this thing oper- operational by June. That's that's my understanding. Well, they'll have the two thousand square meter facility yeah. running by June, but not the thirteen thousand. I, I you know I actually asked for an opinion from our planning department. How long will this take? And he said, well, just to get the studies done, it's probably three to four months. And then we have to quantify it, put in an LC. Then they have to apply for a change of use. Because remember, they have approval for potted mums. 
And so they now they have to apply back to, to uh, uh, planning staff for a change of use to go from potted mums to cannabis. So this is going to take a while. Listen, I got about a minute left. I'm glad you came in to talk about this because there's a, a huge economic uplift. There's a lot of, of an interest and enthusiasm, I think, about this industry. And Hamilton's being pointed to right now as a place where this actually this industry could actually start to flourish and uh, jobs, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, you got to make sure that all the T's are, are dotted. Well, drive down the Queen E down through Niagara and look at them all coming up. Yeah. And, and you know, somebody told me they were driving in from St. Catharines and they could pick up the odor from their cars going down the Queen E. I haven't personally experienced that, but, uh, you know, uh, Lincoln, I believe it is, has put a uh, uh, interim control bylaw to stop anymore until they can figure this out. All right, let me change gears. i got one minute left here. I want to ask you about the uh, the Ancaster Arts Centre, uh, because there's a great deal of concern about that. I know the community is really behind this project. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we know, the province pulled the funding for it, which really kind of put you guys uh, back quite a bit. Uh, is there a plan B? No, there is no plan B, but I'm working on one. Um, I... I'm hopeful that council will support me. Uh, I'm working with city staff to come up with a solution to it. Uh, Bob Wilkins, who is the chairman of the fundraising committee, who was, uh, you know, expected to raise $3 million. Well, he's now raised $4 million for this thing. So the community is squarely behind this thing. But it was a real kick on the stomach because we had treasury board approval. We had cabinet approval, and it was included in the 2018 yeah. budget. And, and uh, the conservatives just cut it. Because we, you know, we'd done the archaeological. We spent eight hundred thousand dollars doing that. It's finished. The project is out for tenders. We speak. Uh, after what happened at the Greg Meyer Arena, uh, we slowed down the procurement because we wanted to put it through a pre-qualification process to make sure only qualified contractors are bidding on this. That's done. The tender's going out, but we have to find the funding shortfall. I'm also working with uh, Philomena from the federal government to see if there's something more that, that uh, they can do for us. But I sure hit a wall with the Conservatives. Horribly disappointed in something that was already approved in writing in the budget. What else could we have done? Well, as I say, the community was really anticipating this, and it's still going to be happening, I hope. Well, that's good news anyway. Uh, we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming in, Lloyd. Okay, good anytime. Good talking to you. Councillor Lloyd Ferguson. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, time for the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us. Good morning. Good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Bill. And uh, finally a nice day. It's sunny. It's about it's time. Bright. It's about time. Springtime fell on a Friday this year. Uh, first of all, long weekend coming up. Yes. Uh, and I know that uh, the your police service have already issued, uh, and so have OPP for that matter, uh, about uh, the fact that we're going to be driving a lot. It's a holiday yep. weekend. People are going to be out and about. And uh, you uh, and uh, the, the, the police services are going to be out and about, too, looking for distracted driving. Yeah, we're doing marine safety as well. I know that. Um, so I'll give you kind of a statistic from uh, fatal and serious collisions, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive. Uh, the vast majority of our fatals happen on bright, sunny days that are clear weather, believe it or not. The reason I say that is if we have the weather that's supposed to be delivered this weekend, it requires that extra uh, attention to driving. I know that the OPP have talked about distracted driving, but what kind of happens is you get in that kind of, boy, this is a great day and just looking at the country and particularly out in rural areas, you miss the stop sign and then suddenly you're in a world of hurt. So you would think on nice, clear, sunny days, you can relax a little bit more 
the statistics show that actually fatals uh, increase on those days. So out and about, uh, be wise. And, and, and well, as, and as we've talked about it, especially when it comes to distracted driving, that's now the number one cause of, of fatalities. Not drinking and driving. I mean, that's way up there still, too, unfortunately. Yep. But distracted driving. I, I see it constantly. And I know just about everybody I've talked to from the police service says, look, at you know, we wish we could just be at every intersection because we see it yep. all the time. And it's kind of where I'm going because, you know, uh, on a day like today, you think, well, I don't have to pay as much attention outside. I don't have slippery roads. It's not raining. It's not foggy. It's all these other things. And to your point, when people start saying, well, I can pick up the phone or, you know, whatever they're doing inside that is not focused on the external environment. So I actually need more attention when it's nice. When we went a couple of weeks ago, we were going up north and uh, towards uh, Collingwood and Blue. I was surprised. I'm probably exaggerating, but it seemed to me as almost as half the people that I saw coming the other way were not paying attention to what they were doing. And this is a two-lane road. Yep. Uh, and, and a lot of the time, they're looking down at their lap. So I got to assume that they're, they're reading text messages while they're operating the car at 100 kilometers an hour. I mean, how bizarre is that? Well, it is. And, uh, you know, we've had Claus on here, and I almost would like to have Claus go out and visit these people because, one, you know how passionate is he is. And two, he has a very large physical presence for delivering the message. Uh, but the point is, you know, uh, you're looking down, you're distracted. If you're looking down the road, and just think of the physics of it. So let's say you, you scan down to your lap for two or three seconds. A vehicle traveling, let's say you're going 100K. What distance do you travel in that time span? And you can just do it by taking a physical marker. Okay, I'll count one two, three, and suddenly you're, you know, three light standards down and you're thinking, boy, that's a lot of distance. Then, you know, you look up, you've suddenly got something presenting in front of you and now you got that response time as well. So uh, it's not an insignificant thing to not look at where you're going. We avoided a collision. This was last summer. Uh, Driving, this is probably doing about 30, 40 clicks. Uh, And there was a car coming the other way and uh, there was a bend in the road, which obviously this driver did not see because she was... I could see that she had her head came. Right, it was could have been a head-on collision. Yeah. She had no idea that That's there was right. a bend in the road, and we, yep. she was coming right at us. I had to swerve and get right off into the side of the road there to avoid the collision. She still can get it, and then she's got this quizzical look on her face, like, "What happened?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a right in a heartbeat, it's amazing what you, how far you can go and the, and the kind of damage you can do. Oh, definitely. And I mean, we've talked about this too. When you think about uh, you know watching the Indy Five Hundred and things like that, and you go, "Oh, they're going two hundred miles an hour, and they have collisions." They're all going in the same direction. Uh, when you're into those situations with two-lane road, let's say you're doing 80 or 90K, then you've got a collision speed at 180. That's if the person's driving the speed limit. You can be facing a similar uh, impact in terms of physics with an oncoming collision. And I know I, <laughs> I watched some motorcycle races out at Shannonville the one time, and uh, it's talking to some of the riders after, and they say, you know, that's one of the safer aspects is we're all going in the same direction, and we're also trained and professional, all these other things. But, you know, they're more uh, aware when they're out on regular roads. They're more concerned there than they are on the track. Well, and to your point, I mean, these guys are professionals. I mean, you yes. know, this, this clown that just about hit me, I said, you're not James Hinchcliffe. You know, I'm sorry, you're not trained to do this. These guys know how to w- avoid these yeah. things. They know how to handle that's right. a, a three-ton vehicle that's going at high speed like that. You can't go and watch the Fast and Furious and say, hey, I can do that too, because you can't. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, enough of that. Uh, smarten up on the roads today, okay? And and uh, impaired as well? Um, yeah, definitely. We've talked about it, and I know we've been getting some messaging out on boating as well. And I really like the mad expression, impaired is impaired. Uh, that's what we've talked about, certainly on this show. It's a communication. So, you know, whether it's uh, illegal drugs, legal pharmaceuticals, 
um, sleep deprivation, uh, alcohol, combinations thereof, impaired is impaired. And the hazards, I mean, we don't have to educate on this. Everybody knows what the hazards are and the devastation left behind. The other element to this, too, just uh, I guess the short version of this is on the, the rules on the water are the same as the rules on the road. Uh, in large part, yeah. yeah. There's, there's some other requirements around safety equipment and things like that. And again, we're trying to be, uh, we moved this way last year very uh, deliberately, which is going out, doing those checks ahead of time, preventative. Look, and you probably saw uh, an article in the spec uh, this week where we have a boater pulled over. And you're thinking, who's out in May? But that's fine. Some people go out. The water's very cold, uh, but out they are. And we did it as warnings. But at a certain point, much like, uh, you know, Red Hill and Link, We'll be handing out tickets. And just on that topic, uh, we have been doing those special duties and issuing it. And I got to tell you, just from a, you know, uh, it's an anecdotal. I've been driving on there, uh, and I'm in an unmarked car, and I'm finding people are doing the 90K and the 90 section, maybe 95. Uh, I'm not seeing the spread between the passing lane and the interior lane the same way it used to. And certainly on the down portion, uh, I came off the, the QE, and people were reducing to around 80, 85K, and I thought, wow, between the enforcement efforts, what the city's doing, the sign postings, it really requires a, a considered effort to change the behavior. Well, it does, and uh, I guess, you know, <laughs> and a burning desire not to be the next statistic, I guess, is part of that, too. Agreed. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Uh, your questions, your uh, comments for the Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gerd, is with us here in studio on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Frank, you're first up. How are you doing this morning, Frank? I'm quite well, thank you. Likewise with you, Shirley, as the case with this weather being as nice as it is. Um, before I start, <clears throat> I just want, if you don't mind, uh, uh, Chief Gert, um this just between you and me. Is uh, Bill happen to bu- happen to be wearing a bright yellow and black sweater by any chance? I, I, I yeah, after what happened last night in uh, in Carolina. <laughs> oh, I, there was uh, a hockey you, game last night. I didn't know. Uh, well, okay, then that's your answer. Listen. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just clarify, Frank, between you and me, with all the listeners. I'm not quite sure I can guarantee that one, and and two, it's really up to uh, to Bill to answer that question. The, the memorabilia is all in my office, Frank. <laughs> Thanks <Well>. for asking. <laughs> that's not hard to believe. I got twofold question for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have asked you before about <clears throat> running of stop signs. I got a twofold one here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Back to where I started once before, uh, Sulphur Springs Road, where it um, ends at uh, Lover's Lane. Yep. Um, the, I had a complaint there a couple of years ago, and now that they've got the uh, posted uh, striped signs of awareness on there. And, uh, you know, it, it still prevails that, pe- that, that people are just running that corner any which way. But, and this might sound very far-fetched, Chief, and then you, Bill, you might think this is a, is a joke, but, you know, I know they took surveys. They had people there with clipboards taking surveys as to how frequent this happened, uh, as, as well as having some of your officers there to catch it in the act. But when they do this, uh, I would t- tend to think there's going to be places in the city where they have a more predominant occurrence of this uh, being the problem. And, you know, I'm going to lead to... I hope someday, uh, I know it's going to be costly, they could put cameras on these areas that are that are prone to people violating repet- repetitively so they can nip them in the butt. Because this, this particular corner is uh, it's notorious for that. Now, I'm going to lead on to another one here. Upcoming um, um, Canadian Open, as you well know, is going to be here in Ancaster, mm-hmm. uh, not far from that particular location. Now, last time... When they had the Canadian Open, as you're probably aware, they blocked off some streets uh, during the uh, the, the event um, 
for fluidity of traffic, for one thing, and it's, there's going to be a lot of it here. And there are people detouring down through that area. Now, in advance of the Canadian Open coming, I can foresee this happening again, that that particular intersection is going to be all the more prone. And, you know, it, it, there's got to be a way to nip this in the butt, Chief. Uh, if you could remark on that, would you have somebody there more routinely at that time? But f- far from that, there has to be something done to um, get these people to be- believe that they're going to get caught. And, uh, you know, I've been going, I've, I've been coming down South Spring Road to turn left onto Lover's Lane. I live in the area, mm-hmm. and I've seen people drive right by in front, right from, I can't see the right lane, and they go right through that area without even looking. Mm-hmm. You see? And uh, I think there are, and I, I, think, I think you're pretty well verified, there are the, the um, tiger-striped um, on, on the pole, on a stop, line, a stop sign pole on both ways. It just concerns me all the more. Um, I'm surprised that there have, there have been collisions there, and maybe minor ones, but um, your comments on this, please. I'm going right. to hang up and let you go at it, okay? Thank you, guys. Appreciate Thanks, the call, Frank. Frank. Thanks so much. Yeah, and a complex question, but really it kind of breaks down a couple things. One, uh, traffic regulation is done through the city and the city of uh, Hamilton Traffic uh, Department. So, for example, you mentioned the tiger tails. Is that what, uh, what they're called? in terms of those stop sign locations. And I do know through my inquiries uh, with the city, they tend to do them for new locations and they have them for a time limited period, usually about six months, but it can be longer. Uh, Where you get petitioning from a particular neighborhood, it can happen, but I I know they don't want to kind of make that the standard because then when everything has a tiger tail, then there's no kind of prominence to a new location. That's number one. Relative to the enforcement, yes, uh, this is a leading complaint. I mean, Bill started in uh, with the driving behavior. And let's remember who's doing the driving behavior. It's people in cars. Um, we're held accountable for it uh, in terms of you need to do something about this. And kind of my reply is yes. However, we need the general public to do something about this. Uh, relative to your location that you're talking about, often what we find is it's local residents. And I've talked about this on the show before. When I was in traffic, I'd get calls on the traffic desk, take the complaint, go out to the location. Lo and behold, some of the people I stopped were those who called it in. So it just speaks to personal responsibility around. And then you get the comment, well, I didn't mean me. I meant everybody else. Well, (laughs) we apply it, you know, uniformly and I'm there as a result of a complaint. Stop sign intersections in the city. And just for perspective, I know one of our crime managers down east, uh, Duncan McCullough, had done this. And I thought this was uh, quite uh, brilliant. He actually, through the city, counted all the stop sign locations in that particular area. And literally hundreds and hundreds. And when you think about it, uh, it kind of makes sense. So pretty much when you've got that behavior, which means people are blowing stop signs, combined with the number of locations, combined with local, it's very difficult to target. Your other solution that you've offered up, and I'm not opposed, but there's privacy issues, is, uh, you know, whether we're doing it now in red light cameras and uh, the city has expanded that. I've stated very publicly I'm in support of photo radar. Um, I'm in support of things that reduce collisions and deaths and injuries. And, you know, if you have a technological solution, I'm in support of that. Again, that's through the city traffic department. Uh, We will continue to enforcement. And I've talked about Red Hill. We'd advocated for that right from the outset when we were studying the effects uh, and all the traffic studies were being done on Red Hill. I know it's a, ta- it's a very uh, uh, dicey issue right now. However, we know enforcement is often a solution. So we continue to enforce, so to speak, force it with our officers to get out there and do that work. We know the public supports it. Off air, I was just speaking to Bill, and he'd had an incident where he stopped by on Stone Church, thanked the officer. You know, if you get that option, 
Uh, it helps our people only because we usually get the counter argument is why are you targeting me? Uh, I wasn't doing this. When you have other members of the public state, you know, kind of, and I'm not looking for cheerleading, I'm just saying it just reaffirms the work that they are doing and it's appreciated. It's a small thing, right? Thanks for doing that, officer. I live in this street. I used to get it quite quite often. I, I really appreciate it. So we're all trying to move in that direction. So whether it's a technological solution or an enforcement solution, uh, we need to work in concert. So thanks for the call, Frank. Appreciate that. Back to my days on council, probably the number one concern into the, the councilor's office is, is traffic, neighborhood traffic, time and time and time again. Running stop signs, people yep. going too fast in residential or school neighborhoods. And I know they've addressed the school neighborhood issue essentially with the uh, the yellow flashing lights yep. on off a lot of the time. And uh, I don't know if that's even a possible solution. I, it, we just had Councillor Ferguson in here from Ancaster. should have asked him, Frank, maybe you should give uh, Lloyd a call and see if he can do something about that. Uh, tricky intersection like that, but you're right. I mean, at some point, you know, we, the public, have to take some responsibility here too. Because I, 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 I used to run the same exact mm-hmm. circumstance that you did. So they'd finally say, could you please get a cop up here and have somebody watch these people? And nine times out of ten, the first people that got nailed were the people that lived in the neighborhood. Yeah. And they'd call me back and say, what do you have the cop there? I said, you asked for it. <laughs> it happens. Yes. Anyway, uh, let's do a break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes. Lots more to talk about and uh, lots more time for your phone calls, too. It's the Chief's Town Hall on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Chief's Town Hall, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert is with us. And let's talk, uh, if we could, Chief, a, a couple of minutes here about Amber Alerts. We had another one earlier this week. Uh, we usually got the, the usual pushback from people saying, oh, that's disturbing. Why are you bothering me with this sort of thing? Uh, maybe we could maybe go back a couple of steps here and talk about exactly why we're doing this in the first place. Yeah, one of the things people may not recognize is there's a strict criteria for what qualifies as an Amber Alert and what does not. So one, we don't use it for every missing person we have. Particularly, we have vulnerable persons at risk, uh, being children or the elderly, and we need the community's help. Uh, So think about uh, the one that just happened, and I realize the time of day that it happened. Uh, In this case, it was travel through bus, but often it is not. So think about the distance, because I can drive to Ottawa in about five hours. So if we're releasing five, six hours after the event, because part of the response is, well, why are you notifying everybody? Why don't you just do it in the local community? And that's one of the reasons. Um, if you think back a couple of years where we didn't have it, and then there was a big talk, well, why wouldn't you distribute out to everybody? We can assist through the community to identify these cases. When you think about the inconvenience, and I got woke up to out of, you know, the sound sleep, not that I don't with other phone calls, but the, you think, holy smokes, the place on fire, you know, I get that. But when you look at the alternative where we had, I think it was two Amber Alerts ago, uh, the young girl was was murdered, uh, the, hus- or the father took his life. Uh, we do not want, I don't think anybody does, these horrendous outcomes. So if we can intervene beforehand... Think back again, there was an investigation in Halton where there was a baby stolen from the hospital just after birth. I don't know if you remember that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ended up locating uh, a woman who had stolen the child in a hotel. Uh, again, uh, you know, the minutes count in those investigations and the distance you can get away and all the other things in terms of pre-planning on these abductions, we need to respond very quickly. Uh, the counterpart to the 911 calls is, you know, why you phone into your local dispatcher and type a 911 line. We don't have so many of them. And our other calls waiting for service can be a domestic or an assault in progress, a motor vehicle collision. You know, when I look at and you think, well, okay, that's an extreme. Well, actually, our leading calls for service in all our areas 
our domestic violence and family situation. So it's not um, uh, unheard of. Uh, we do have those calls going on, and now you're going to complain about being disturbed in your sleep. And the other part, back to the criteria piece, is we determine, and then we send it through the OPP or kind of the final filter to say, does this qualify or not? So one, not all the missing persons, and we have thousands of missing person investigations in a year. It's particular vulnerabilities, time sensitive, got to get the information out. And I mean, the good part is, in this most recent, it was closed very quickly. The child was located. We'll take the enforcement steps, but somebody's not dead. And, and I mean, you can say, well, you're, you're providing extreme examples. Not really. Tori Stafford was a classic exactly. example when she was abducted. Right. Uh, that was right by the 401, right. uh, and within a couple of minutes, as we found out during the trial, they were miles and miles away. Yeah, and that's so kind of, an issue. Yeah. Uh, if they issued that to Woodstock, it would have been totally useless. Correct. And then you've got everybody looking in that area. But, uh, you know, when we try and release as much detail as we can, both on physical description, potential locations, where they might go. Uh, but again, we're under the clock, too, to get this stuff out in an expeditious manner, send it through the duty officer, send it up to OPP, actually dis- disperse it. Uh, through the notification. So, for, you know, and I, I know I'm in law enforcement, but for me, it's, it's a small inconvenience to wake up. Uh, I got up and read the thing because, quite frankly, if it's my jurisdiction, I want to know, uh, is there an impact or the things we can be doing? And But, you know, for anybody, and, you know, think about the kids in your life, the vulnerable adults in your life. Well, that, that's the element that I talked about on the show that day. What if it were your kid? Exactly. We just say, oh, well, just, and, and they don't do this lightly. I mean, we've talked no, to the OPP about know. this. It, it's not as if, okay, uh, Jimmy's supposed to be home by 3 o'clock, it's 4 o'clock and he's not there, let's issue an Amber Alert. They don't do that. No, these this are is, not these those are, cases. These are children that are perceived to be in grave danger. And usually abducted, so it's not a willful thing. We know there are parental abductions, too, but we also know, and I worked in this unit uh, in terms of investigations, where the child ends up in a foreign country, which may or may not be part of the Hague Convention for return and enforcement, and then you have parents languishing for years. They haven't seen their children. Uh, the other spouse took them against their will. You've got all this collateral damage where when we get it out quickly, particularly where people are going to fly out of the country or cross the borders, we wanted a system in place to do that. We have a system. If it's inconvenient to you, um, quite frankly, I think the greater good is around, as you've said, finding these children, these vulnerable people. The, the other element to it, too, and, and I think this example this week was a, a, maybe a, a great example of, uh, to underscore this. It works. Uh, exactly. Again, again, in our conversations with OPP, they tell us that when these alerts come out, yeah, you get a couple of people that, well, more than a couple, I guess, they just whine and complain about this, about how you're disturbing their day or whatever it might be. But they also get a lot of phone calls from people that said, I think I saw that or it's like I saw somebody. And that leads to successful conclusions. Definitely. And we've been talking about relative the shootings and things. We want people to phone in and tell us little bits of information they have. We have reached out consistently to say, uh, please contact us. Uh, I was commenting this on uh, last weekend in terms of arrest for break and enters. We had people observe it on video and call us. We had people see somebody suspicious in a yard and call us. And I said, you know, we made five arrests on the weekend for crimes in progress. Uh, not through our particular measures, but because the community reached out and contacted us. To your point about the technology and things we can do, that's a tremendous advantage for us, and it's back to the community assisting us to keep their their community safe. So 
I applaud those efforts and the proper use of technology to help us uh, combat these things. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Your questions, your comments for the Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert, here on the Town Hall, Chief's Town Hall, on the Bill Kelly Show at 900 CHML. Uh, Joe, thanks for holding on. How are you this morning, Joe? Oh, thank you very much. I've got a couple of traffic questions for the Chief. Sure, go ahead. Uh, number one is Ottawa and Rimo. Uh, what's the reason for uh, no right turn on a red light there? Are you talking Upper Ottawa and Rimo? Yes. Uh, again, we don't set those. Uh, it's city traffic that usually does it. Where they usually prohibit turns on a red light is where there may be obscured vision, uh, between traffic flow where there's not opportunities to make that turn safely. Uh, I can give you an example, which is not Ottawa and Rimo, but if you think of Walnut and King, just by the placement of buildings, you just can't see well enough to get out there safely. Uh, I don't know the specific answer to that question, but city traffic sets those uh, prohibited turns. You can probably phone the city traffic department and find that out, and they should be able to provide some rationale. Yeah, it's pretty wide open. Like, there's no other ones along there, like Wentworth Gage and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other question is on uh, Queen Victoria Drive. Yeah. On uh, by the yeah, there's a, a park there. There's two. Uh, rubber speed bumps and a stop sign within 100 yards of each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, during the winter, the, the snowplow knocked part of the rubber one out and then it was replaced. But I was just wondering, during a soccer game, there's a, like the kids are there, but there's parking on both sides of the street and uh, traffic is uh, minimal or, or to begin with. I was just wondering if, uh, you know, that's kind of overkill. Yeah, again, these are usually uh, petitions through the local communities. I look at Bill because he would receive these calls as a counselor where they've asked for additional, often what they used to do is stop signs. What's happening now is uh, bumps and speed deterrent uh, physical barriers to slow down the speed in the neighborhood. Uh, so again, it's city traffic that establishes those we don't. And uh, it's generally physical restraints to uh, slow down the speed in the areas, particularly around a park. Uh, you've articulated, and I don't know the exact intersection, but you've done a good physical description of it, is based on the frequency of kids in the area. Uh, we know about the speeds. I don't know if it's a 40 zone there or not. That may be the next thing coming. Um, then they try and reduce that speed. So uh, if you have a collision, that obviously you have a lower chance of injury. But it may just be a combination, as you say, of volume, um, the kids permanent in the area, restrictions for the parking, for events. And we see that in many neighborhoods around parks. Uh, so they're trying to slow down the speed, but that's done through the city. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, You're welcome. Appreciate the call, Joe. Thanks. Uh, and, and again, usually the ward council, they get presented with a petition and say, look, at you know, we've got concerns about here. And, and we see this happen at parks a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, and well, the, under the guise of traffic calming. And mm-hmm. a lot more tools than there used to be. I mean, even back 10, 15 years ago, you didn't use speed bumps. There was, they, they said, no, no, we're never going to put those on city streets. Well, they do now. Yeah, and, I mean, we do take a proactive measure where we've got uh, incidents where we go out and do enforcement. And always my theory was, and this was years ago when I was working in traffic, is why would I leave an intersection the same way it is, have the behavior continue when I can either put a physical restriction, some other physical measure that deters the activity? That just, it's back to prevention. It seems to make sense to me. And it's certainly less costly in terms of, um, you know, a physical barrier versus uh, months and years of enforcement uh, just to, you, you just call them fishing holes. I was never a big proponent for fishing holes. It told me there was uh, some kind of engineering issue. If you can address it, then that's a better approach because I, I don't want to just go out and do fishing. I, you know, I want to do areas where it's going to have an impact on traffic safety. 
we had Councilor Ferguson in here in the previous hour talking about the uh, the cannabis operation that's going to be going out in Ancaster on Jerseyville Road, uh, which led me to uh, illegal operations, yep. uh, the retail operations. Yep. Uh, we used to be the king of Ontario when it came to that. We had, well, <laughs> I think, over 50 at one time, didn't we? We did, and uh, there's some dates here that are important. You know, pre-October 17th, where, quite frankly, we didn't have the tools to shut down and restrain a property. Post-October 17th, we did. We, in fact, have over 20 properties restrained. Some property owners are getting their uh, properties back, which is fine. There's a uh, <clears throat> process through the divisional courts, and you have to do undertakings for certain things, not to open it up again as that type of establishment. In terms of what is available now, we're down to one pop-up, which means they may open for four or five hours. And as you know, in terms of getting warrants and the legal authorization to go in and uh, bust the place, because you can't just on the basis of, well, I think there might be uh, something going on there, and you suddenly appear and uh, restrain and take everything. Well, it doesn't work that way. So diligent efforts through our cannabis enforcement team, which is a provincial effort, and we certainly thank our partners from all the other services participating. Uh, diligent effort. I did have a chance to meet the premier at the Special Olympics the other day, and uh, and uh, had a quick chat with him just to bring him up to date on the the facts. And we're like I, at that point, we're down to two pop ups uh, with those restrained properties. We have taken a focused effort in this community, and then part of the debate as well. Uh, I get the pressure from you need to shut them down when they're legal. Two, we have parking issues in the area. Three, we've got the medical argument going on that we're restricting access. Well, we have two legal. Uh, shops open now and the online and I realize it's insufficient but that's a regulatory issue for the government. Uh, one of the interesting pieces I heard on the news there and actually Mike Fortune raised it when I was on uh, Police Watch is youth consuming and in fact they overdosed on whatever it was they were distributed. It was held out as marijuana. It turned out to be some other substance. I don't even know what the substance was. Where naloxone had to be administered to these kids uh, part of our argument around the illegal part is y- it's not regulated by the government. You are not getting it from a known <coughs> supplier, and you don't have the measures to ensure that the THC content is what it's supposed to be, but also uh, additional drugs being introduced. And, you know, it's no surprise to anybody between fentanyl and carfentanyl now and the opioid crisis, uh, dealers really don't care about the impact on those who are consuming, and we're seeing deaths, certainly the opioid uh, what we don't want to get into, and I was talking to our drug unit, they are now starting to see uh, instances where fentanyl has been introduced into uh, marijuana. So now you're not consuming just, you know, you know it's only cannabis. No, uh, particularly where it's illegally distributed. And I'm not saying all these dispensaries do, and I'm just saying on the street this is happening. So people are introduced uh, to fentanyl. Uh, I haven't seen carfentanyl yet, but, you know, it's just a matter of time. Well, those two kids—they almost died. If this, Agreed. If, if this it's life-threatening. Yeah, if this individual actually somebody just came across them and and obviously uh, called police and uh, had that not happened, we, we'd probably be talking about two fatalities. And and again, they probably thought as, that's the story that we're hearing anyway—is that they just they just thought it was pot. That's and right. There was something else in there. Well, that's some of the messaging we've been getting out in terms of regulation. When you do get it uh, from uh, the black market, so to speak, you don't know what you're getting. We used to talk about this years ago when I was in uh, the street crime unit going out for presentation to kids, you know, and for compressed drugs, you know, it's got a stamp on it. You know, it's been uh, made by a legitimate source versus these unstamped ones. And you really got to watch what you're getting because they're interested in the profits. You know, they use all kinds of cutting agents. 
A couple of minutes left here. I wanted to talk about the youth crime report that came out. I know yep. that you talked about the uh, police services board. I guess the headline here, Chief, is uh, is youth crime is down, but violent youth crime is actually uh, slightly increasing right now. What's the story there? Yeah, so about a 7% increase in the violent crime. Property crimes are down substantially. We are down below the national average in terms of Hamilton. And if you look at kind of a 10 to 15-year span, we're seeing uh, really long-term reductions in youth crime. The 7% increase uh, last year was larger around assault level ones, which are, it can mean anything from a push or application of force without consent at a lower level. When you get into a broken bones and teeth and things like that, you're moving to an assault level two or an aggravated, which is assault level three. Um, so these are substantially those. And that can be anything from a schoolyard fight to somebody gets punched without their consent. So that's a growth area. Uh, what I'm looking at, and obviously what's uh, concerning the public, is we've had, you know, a homicide involving use with a, uh, you know, a firearm involved. Uh, we had a most recent event where uh, a round was fired at, uh, at King and Caroline at the Tim Horton store, and we made an arrest in that as well. Uh, they are concerning, but they are not the norm. I certainly hope they don't become the norm. Uh, and again, they don't represent the large portion of the population of youth that's uh, living in the city today. Often what I would do as the youth coordinator, when I had people come in with suggestions, anything from, you know, well, they should wear a sign and go to the mall and say, I'm a thief. Uh, just remember back to the Scarlet Letter and Nathaniel Hawthorne and how that one went. And uh, the stigmatization that's involved in that, um, it's really not the best approach. But think about the kids you know in your life. Think about, you know, their risk levels. Are they just kids going to school, trying to make their way, work part-time, have friends, figure out life? Or are you dealing with high-risk offenders who are out carrying firearms and you know it? I'd certainly hope if you do that you call us. Um, but, you know, we've got to look at the proportion of the population. We've talked about it. Uh, Fred Matthews did a ton of research out of Toronto on gangs and youth crime years back. And he came up, and I used the paradigms. He, he called it Matthews Law. He said 75% of the kids are good kids, 20% are at risk, 5% are high risk. And it's not exactly the exact figures, but it's not a bad mental construct. When you actually look at the percentage of high-risk youth who are doing these offenses, it's less than one-half of 1%. So we need a serious response to that, and we take that seriously. But the, we've got to be careful not to demonize all youth. Which is why uh, I, I know you and others, of course, have developed diversion programs and for, the, for that 75%. Exactly. And a lot of people say, well, that's, you know, that's soft on crime. You know, when you look at it, the fundamentals, if I'm going to incarcerate youth and put them in with another group of youth who know how to steal cars and do all these criminal offenses, they're going to share their abilities. When I'm talking about a kid who made a bad decision and I stream them to pre-charge, we have studied the rates of recidivism. In other words, will they repeat the behavior? And it's quite low with pre-charge diversion. When I'm talking our high-risk youth, and we do it under what's called the STOP program, Strategic Targeted Defender Program, these are kids who either committed violent crimes or out on probation order. We go and visit them to make sure that they are abiding by their condition. So we don't treat everybody with a broad brush. We treat the youth where we find them and their life circumstances, and then we uh, regulate them appropriately. But in my view... It's not good practice. It's not wise to start streaming kids into uh, incarceration. We already know in terms of North America, highest rates of that in the first place. We've been dropping that in the last few years. And you can make the argument, yeah, well, you're releasing violent kids out to society. The violent kids are being dealt with under those regulations, and it is a very small percentage. Uh, we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming in today. Great to see you. Have a great long weekend. Thank you, Bill. You're going to be out patrolling too? 
Uh, I'll be actually working on a whole bunch of other stuff <laughs> if I get a chance, sure. Uh, but, yeah, uh, coming out of Police Week, it's been a, a great week for us, and uh, really appreciate you having us on The Bill Kelly Show. Thanks so much. <laughs> I want Chief of Police, Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.